Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline for another conversation. Today we have Chester Finn with us. Uh, he is the President Emeritus of the Thomas Fordham Institute and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served in the Department of Education in the Reagan Administration and was Professor of Education and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University uh, for several years, from 1981 to 2002. His many books include What Do Our 17-Year-Olds Know? That was co-authored with Diane Ravitch, uh, The Educated Child, A Parent's Guide from Preschool Through Eighth Grade, uh, co-authored with William Bennett uh, and John Cribb. Uh, he also has a, a memoir that I recommend to everyone, read it several, a few years ago, called Troublemaker, A Personal History of School Reform Since Sputnik. He has a new book out, co-authored with Andrew Scanlon, who is a researcher at the Fordham Institute, uh, entitled Learning in the Fast Lane, the Past, Present, and Future of Advanced Placement, which is our topic today. Uh, welcome, Dr. Finn. Thank you very much, Mark. Nice to be with you always. Now, we, we don't really hear much about the, the AP uh, world when we're talking about education reform. Uh, the education reform tends to be focused on, well, as No Child Left Behind puts it, those students who really need, uh, who are struggling. Who need more help? But in this book, actually, and in your previous book, you talk a lot about okay. Let, let's let's focus on those those top students, uh, or at least what what maybe the the top third uh, students. That is that a deliberate turn on your part, or I've gotten more and more concerned about the plight of uh, high ability kids in American education, especially high ability kids from disadvantaged uh, circumstances who depend on the edu formal, formal education system to maximize their potential and propel them uh, into, I hope, upward mobility and success in life and, and citizenship. Uh, it's, it's occurred to me that uh, the international competitiveness requires that we maximize our human capital, and that means taking every possible future rocket scientist, uh, brain surgeon, uh, inventor, uh, you name it, whether they are white or black, rich or poor, and uh, getting them the kind of education that turns them into potential leaders in America. And it also occurs to me that the at a time when the country is really obsessed with uh, mobility issues, the poor kids with the greatest potential to be upwardly mobile, not surprisingly, are smart poor kids. And uh, if the system isn't uh, looking after them properly, then then we're not going to have the kind of mobility that we worry about. And uh, there's all kinds of evidence that while my 16-year-old granddaughter at a very good high school with good navigators in her life and in her school is going to do just fine, equally able kids from other backgrounds are not because they depend on the schools to to, to navigate for them, to uh, accelerate them, to challenge them, et cetera. So uh, whether you're looking at, at international data or national assessment data or uh, advanced placement participation data or who gets into the selective high schools, uh, the big fight they're having in New York these days, uh, it's, um, it's skewed, and I think we should be doing something about that. So I've gotten interested in gifted education in the education of high-ability kids. Well, why don't you just mention your previous book, Checker? Well, the, the, there, there are two that dealt with smart kids in one way or another. The, uh, with uh, Jessica Hockett a few years ago, I, I published a book called Exam Schools, which is a close look at the relatively small number of selective admission public high schools in America. 
and uh, which there turned out to be not nearly enough. And uh, far too uh, few kids have the opportunity to go to them, even though they're a wonderful way to uh, develop this kind of talent. And then uh, more recently with with Brandon Wright, another Fordham colleague, uh, we wrote uh, uh, Failing Our Our, Our Smartest Kids, an an international look at the handling of gifted kids in a number of countries, almost all of which end up with more disadvantaged kids in the high-scoring part of the PISA results than we do. That that, that was, I, I read that book, that was the extraordinary finding there, and that is the number of kids who really who, who who wouldn't seem to to profit. They don't have the profile of of those top kids, but they end up there on on the tests. But in the United States, fewer of them make it there than in a lot of competitor countries that are more conscientious and effective with their gift of education. So, so uh, this has led us on to a look at. Uh, an underexamined program, and I'm going to call a success story. Kind of one of the reasons we don't get much attention to the AP program, frankly, is that the uh, coverage of education in America focuses on bad news, and uh, and um, advanced placement is on the whole a, a big success over the last 60 years. Uh, it's um, it's grown enormously. Uh, it serves about 3 million high school kids a year who take among them about 5 million AP exams these days, every year, across, 30, across 38 subjects. Uh, and uh, it is it is propelling a great many kids into uh, better colleges, into sometimes early credit and shortening of their time to degree, in many cases, uh, into more advanced courses than they than the than the standard intro courses in their subjects and it's also doing a lot of other things it's uh it's dealing with senioritis it's dealing with the uh the the bored kid in high school who's just otherwise putting in time because they've completed their requirements and they're bored out of their mind and they're just uh, waiting to go to college this is an antidote to that uh, so there are a lot of pluses in the ap program and and the big story over the last uh, 25 years program goes back to the 50s, but in the early days, uh, it was for privileged kids, kids going to privileged high schools, um, mostly uh, upper middle class kids, both private and public privileged high schools. The big shift of the last 25 years has been the inclusion uh, and a purposeful inclusion of uh, disadvantaged kids in AP classroom. So, so the, SA, the, the SAT was created to pick up some of those disadvantaged kids who had real talent, correct? Uh, yes. But, but, that, but that wasn't the original formulation for, for AP. It was, it was really just to get college work down into the high school for those, for those privileged kids, yes? But for smart kids, for um, advanced learners. Uh, back in the 50s, the, the Sputnik, Sputnik time, when the country is worried about its, uh, its talent and its human capital, the Ford Foundation invests in a bunch of experiments to figure out how to how to basically accelerate the education of uh, high ability kids who were already sort of maxing out on their high school courses, and they tried two versions of it. One was sending kids to college to regular college at a younger age, acceleration, and the other was bringing college level courses into the high school. Uh, and uh, some of both, uh, some of the former goes on, but not much, because there turned out to be all kinds of social adjustment problems when 15 and 16 year olds were sent off to college. 
but but the bringing of college level academics into high school uh, really took off uh, in the 50s and got bigger and bigger in the 60s and 70s and then has ballooned over the last uh, several decades via AP and, and not incidentally not just AP there are other ways of bringing college level work into high schools they they're just smaller than AP the one 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 instrumental moment in the in the explosion of AP because you know you know I I finished high school in 1977 checker and I I went to Montgomery County schools uh, for a few years I didn't graduate from high school there I graduated from Southern California schools uh, which had no AP courses uh, the courses I went I don't remember AP being in these Montgomery County schools which were in in Maryland outside DC which are pretty high high performing schools uh was i mean how, how common was ap in 1975 let's say it was growing into a lot more schools we've got some charts and graphs in the book that, that show the growth but uh, uh montgomery county which is where i live i uh, has for as long as i can remember which is not back to when you were in high school here uh as long as i can remember has had some of its high schools uh doing a huge amount of ap and and then a bunch of others doing little or none of it, which is one of the case studies in this book, uh, is a look, close look at a purposeful AP expansion effort in Montgomery County uh, from the seven high schools that do a lot of it uh, to the other 18, where either they don't do much of it at all or the kids who get to participate in it um, are almost all white and Asian. So this has um, been a... Uh, steadily growing phenomenon in American education, uh, and uh, what year it, it hit Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, I do not know, uh, but I'll tell you, there's a heck of a lot of it going on there today. There is. There's, well, there was that book about a dozen years ago called The Overachievers. Do you remember this book? Uh, was it Alexandra Robbins, the author, a, a journalist? Uh, and she profiled, I think, were these the students? They were at Walt Whitman High or Churchill? I can't Either remember which, which high school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And AP, AP was a huge part of these hyper-ambitious kids shooting for the top, the very top schools. AP is now really a crucial element in the overachieving, the overachieving kid today, correct? Uh, in several ways. Not, not, one is make their transcript look impressive by having these courses named on it. Uh, one is by beefing up their their GPA because if AP courses typically bring an extra point in your in your calculation. So if you get an A in an AP course, typically you get five points, whereas if you get an A in a regular course, you get four points. So all the math uh, works out to uh, increase your GPA. Additionally, uh, people think that they will impress the colleges by how many high scores they get on AP exams, not just which courses they took, um, because, you know, if everybody who's competing against me is getting a, um, a 1,580 on their SATs in English and math, and, um, then I need some other way to distinguish myself. So let me arrive with, um, you know, seven fives on my AP exams. And maybe they'll like me better than that other kid with the 1580 SAT who only has four AP exams. These distinctions <laughs> at, the, at the very, very high end, 
which might seem small to to you know the the, the broad population that this this can be decisive or at least that's how they think well they think that way and so i will be honest to their parents and grandparents uh I'm, I'm my 16-year-old granddaughter, who's only in 10th grade, but at a very good school. We're already strategizing with her about college. Of course we are. Of course we are. Right. Uh, Checker, what, I, mean, I, should, I should tell our audience, uh, Chester Finn, uh, he, he goes broadly by the name Checker. Uh, so, Checker, was Stand and Deliver huge? Stand and Deliver was a turning point for AP because it, um, it, it sort of proved the point that poor kids could do this, too. Uh, to tell tell our audience what that was, a lot of them may may not have been born yet. Uh, that's certainly true, since this happened in the late '80s. Uh, a, a Bolivian immigrant math teacher in South Central Los Angeles at a, a school full of poor immigrant Latina Latino kids, a man named Jaime Escalante, uh, was uh, concluded that instead of letting poor immigrant kids off easy, which was the norm in his high school, uh, he, in or, lest they feel discouraged and drop out and stuff like that, he felt that they would respond to challenge, as had been the case in his native land. And he said, I'm going to teach these kids calculus. And everybody sort of said, horrors, they can't do calculus. But lo and behold, he started a calculus class at Garfield High School, and uh, and it really took off, and it took off to the point that his kids were passing the AP calculus exam. Giant scandal one year in the late '80s when all of them passed the AP calculus exam, leading the the fraud detectors at the educational testing service to suspect there must have been cheating. So so they blew the whistle. Big national scandal. All those kids, almost all those kids, retook the exam a second time, passed it again. Um, under you know different proctors and and and, and stuff, and um, Escalante got profiled um, first in this movie, well simultaneously really in a in a very good movie called Stand and Deliver. Lou, Lou Diamond Phillips, the actor, he got his start in in that film. I, I he he was one of the students in there. He was very good. Uh, I will take your word for that. I didn't know that, but that's wonderful. And my and Washington Post columnist named Jay Matthews, uh, who is a huge AP fan, wrote a book about Escalante, the title of which was The Best Teacher in America, uh, which is a, quite a title, actually. <laughs> that, that, that'll sell books. And, um, and then well, back when I was working at the Department of Education with Bill Bennett in the late 80s, uh, Escalante was... Uh, was feted at the, by the Secretary of Education and at the White House uh, by Reagan, and uh, he was a, a a big deal. And it's not just this one it's not just this one case study of this one school. It was the demonstration value of what this could mean. So suddenly, the scales fell off a lot of eyes. People who were concerned about equal opportunity and mobility and um, and 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 uh, equity and stuff like that, and uh, but suddenly they were saying, you know. Besides giving privileged kids a kind of a, a, a head start, if you will, on college, uh, AP could become a booster rocket for poor kids to uh, go to college, to think they could go to college, to have experience with college-level work, uh, maybe to get a head start on college when they arrive. So it's, that's been, as I mentioned, I think the, the big historic change over the last few decades. And it was uh, certainly symbolized by Stand and Deliver, and, and to some degree catalyzed by it, I would say. 
I would I would hope that that movie would continue as as a proof case that the the soft bigotry of low expectations really is exactly that uh, that, that that this this can be done with students who other people give up on. Let, let me ask about I, I wasn't going to mention this, but Jay Matthews became a very influential figure in secondary schooling, the high school world, because of that list and, and the, the role of AP in the list he composed. T- tell, tell, you, you talk about Matthews in the book frequently. Tell us about that list. He's, he's something of a friend, or at least we have a, something of a mutual admiration society going about AP. Uh, Jay, uh, for a couple decades now, has created and now annually publishes essentially a ranking of American public high schools uh, by uh, quality, as he deems it. And his biggest metric of quality is how many AP exams get taken by kids in that high school relative to the size of the high school. And um, this is a, you know, Americans are obsessed with rankings of schools and, and things like that. Um, and the schools either love it or hate it, but they tend to want to maximize their rankings, whether they like it or not. Uh, and uh, and U.S. News does something similar. Jay started doing this with Newsweek and now and the Washington Post, and now he does it on his own, though he's still a Washington Post columnist. Uh, and news and U.S. News does something very similar, and they they also have a major AP factor in their in the in the algorithm by which they uh, they rate and rank and compare these schools. And so AP has indeed contributed to something of an arms race among high schools themselves to uh, boost their rankings on these uh, lists. And I and Jay knows that perfectly well and is delighted to be having that effect because he regards it as maximizing opportunities for more kids in more schools to take part in advanced placement. Does he does he include in the calculation the percentage of the students who pass who, who reach four and five, let's say, on the AP test, or no? Just 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 taking the test. Uh, in the Matthews calculation, it's just taking the test, which means access to something called AP doesn't mean they're succeeding at it. the The U.S. U.S. News algorithm is more complicated and includes uh, includes scores uh, on the exams as well. Uh, and um, so you can you can do it either way or both ways. Uh, Matthews insists that access to AP is what he's aiming for, but it does. But your question does raise an important factor that needs to be thought about and dealt with, which is that as access to AP has been democratized and more poor and minority kids are getting into these class, classrooms and taking these exams. The foreign minority kids are not doing as well on those exams as the rich kids and the white kids and the Asian kids. And there are a lot of ones and twos. As I think your listeners know, the AP is scored from one to five, and three is regarded as passing, and five is regarded as really, really good. And one and two are not expected to get you any, any credit in college, uh, whereas and a, a whole bunch of the minority kids, the new, the new populations taking AP are getting ones and twos. And uh, not all, but, 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 but way too many. And so I think a big challenge ahead for the program and for the high schools that their kids are going to is not just to get them into the classrooms and into the exam rooms, but also to get them well enough educated in those subjects that they'll do well on the exams. Well, here's my question, Checker. Is, it, is the course in itself worthwhile 
even if the kids score a two on, on the exam, they are getting a stronger course. They're reading, I mean, in English, I actually did some work on, on the English language and literature uh, exam, uh, 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 curriculum a few years ago. And the idea was, we, we didn't think about the test. We thought about making a real strong curriculum in that class. And one of the things that my students who, who took AP English tell me is that uh, they read a lot. They just, they just had to do a ton of reading. And the simple volume of, of pages was, in itself, excellent preparation for college. Most of the teachers that we interviewed say almost exactly the same thing and report feedback from their former students who come back from college and say, thank you, Mr. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so, for helping me get ready to handle college because I have your AP class, even though I got a two or sometimes even got a one uh, on, the, on the exam. You, it, it's, I'm, I'm convinced, though, the, I have to tell you, the, research is, the formal research on this is not conclusive, uh, but I am convinced from the anecdotal evidence that the, that the exposure and active participation in a properly taught AP class is itself worthwhile uh, for kids wanting to go to college, aiming for college. Uh, and that uh, this is a reason that something like Matthew's uh, 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 algorithm makes sense, because he's really just trying to get them to have the experience. Uh, not not waiting to see how they do on the exam. However, uh, because you get additional benefits if you do well on the exam, uh, there's no doubt that uh, equalizing, getting getting a more equal outcomes on AP exams, well, without without dumbing down the uh, the scoring system, uh, is an important challenge ahead. And it's it's a it's a huge one. And of course, it's more than the uh, College Board and the AP program themselves can handle because they they have very little leverage over what happens before high school. And an awful lot of these disadvantaged kids are entering high school from uh, truly mediocre or worse middle schools, which, mean, which means they're arriving in ninth grade, you know, woefully unprepared for AP-type work. And um, uh, really good high schools do, do remarkable things to try to uh, sort of soup them up and, uh, and remediate them to get them ready for AP-level work. And we saw some examples of that in our research. But it's really hard, uh, and uh, it's doubly hard if, along with the mediocre middle school, these kids don't have much support at home and for academics, and maybe nobody can get them to the Saturday morning cram sessions that the high school offers to uh, give them extra, extra help. And, and, and College Board can't do anything about that. They can't do anything about the middle schools. They certainly can't, they certainly can't do anything about the home life. The, uh, again, very good high schools, including often charter schools, are getting better and better at engaging parents and uh, at uh, it also at enveloping students in a more comprehensive school experience that isn't just nine to three, five days a week. Uh, so there are ways schools can uh, ameliorate the outside challenges in these kids' lives, but they, they'll never be a proper substitute for it. Yeah. In the book, you, you, you branch out, you, you go into detail, for example, in, in Chapter 4, you talk about what has happened in, in Texas with the EAP. Just, you, you want to give us, you call it the Lone Star Challenge. What, what is the Lone Star Challenge here? The, we use Fort Worth as uh, our case study here, uh, and uh, 
Fort Worth made a heroic effort with the help of a program called the National Math and Science Initiative and some local philanthropists to bring introduce advanced placement into some Fort Worth high schools full of poor and black and Hispanic kids that had had little or no AP before. And um, they one high, exactly one high school in Fort Worth had had a lot of AP historically, uh, and the others had had little or none. And so they worked very hard with five high schools to introduce more AP, and they also uh, changed some other policies so that the district, for example, would pay for AP test fees, which are not trivial for kids. Uh, and um, the it's 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 heavy going to impose a program like advanced placement from on high in a high school that hasn't had it and doesn't necessarily know that it wants it. Uh, for it to for it to really take hold, there's got to be quite a lot of buy-in by uh, the principal and the teachers, and there's got to be a kind of culture shift in the school that says these kids actually belong in AP. And we we know they may not do too well on the exams at the beginning, but we want we want these kids in those kinds of classes. Whereas a lot of high schools still across America only let their already proven students into advanced placement classrooms. So you you need a culture shift, you need leadership, you need stability, which is to say you need the same principal and teachers in the same place for multiple years. You need the teachers. You need the teachers to be willing and able to go to the professional development that helps them become competent AP teachers. This was one question I had. As AP has exploded, uh, Checker, is it getting harder finding enough teachers who are actually capable of handling AP courses, which are essentially freshman college courses? That's right. It's it's uh, there. There is a population, a large one, of teachers who adore the AP because it gets them in contact with smart kids who generally uh, participate in class and usually do the homework, etc. So for many teachers, it's a wonderful, stimulating pedagogical opportunity, and they're often their favorite class. But um, when you try to bring AP into a high school that hasn't had it and where the teachers have been, let's say, droning on for multiple years through a kind of textbook-based um, uh, didactic instruction, um, and you look at those same teachers and say, you want to teach AP, a lot of them are going to say, nah, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. And if they're willing to take it on, then you need they need to both uh, really have the subject matter competence that is required of a, essentially a college freshman teacher, but also the pedagogical ability to run those kinds of courses, which are much more interactive and Socratic and, and, and analytic and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of professional development available for teachers, AP teachers, but not everybody goes to it. And sometimes they have to pay their own way for a week in the summer in someplace far away. So so it's, it's there are a bunch of implementation challenges, and that's really in the case of Texas, which where AP is growing enormously, as, as incidentally has AP's biggest sort of rival, which is dual, dual enrollment from community colleges, which is also growing in Texas at, a, at an amazing pace. Uh, the, uh, the reason we focused on Texas, aside from the fact that uh, one of our funders is a Fort Worth foundation, uh, is that um, the National Math and Science Initiative was born in Texas. Um, at the instance of the ExxonMobil Corporation, incidentally then headed by former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, uh, who uh, put quite a lot of ExxonMobil money into, into basically spreading 
uh, science and math AP courses around the country in the high schools that hadn't had them before. Uh, and um, another a Dallas philanthropist named Peter O'Donnell uh, started with his own foundation experimenting with uh, spreading AP into uh, more high schools in the Dallas metro area. So there's a lot of early uh, energy and money uh, going into this kind of expansion effort. And the legislators picked it up and the governor picked it up. And it's it's got a lot of momentum in Texas. Now, I remember a few years ago, uh, a story came up and you you mentioned this later in the book where some colleges, I mean, I think Dartmouth might have been one of them. Some colleges wanted to eliminate uh, credit for AP courses because they, well, some of them said that when the students then took a course in college at the next level, the sophomore level courses, those students who exempted out didn't perform so well. That, I, I, I seem to recall that, that, they, that AP was worried that this would be a trend that colleges would do, but that hasn't happened, correct? Well, there's a bunch of elite private colleges that have made it harder to get credit for AP. There's no doubt about that. In many cases, they still use it for course placement. That is to say, they will let you take the the 202 course in the subject instead of the 101 course in the subject uh, when you get there, if you've got a five on the AP exam, not just a three. And they're very demanding about what kind of score you have to you have to present. Uh, a handful of elite private colleges that, that, that are doing this, and I think their motives are mixed, frankly. Uh, the professors will sometimes tell you that, and will often tell you that the Courses are not really equivalent to what they would be teaching in their freshmen. Uh, there's sort of there's some intellectual snobbery going on here, but I think there's other things going on too, and they're not terribly attractive, uh, like wanting kids to pay four full years of tuition uh, at the at Dartmouth College and uh, fill all those intro classes so that the Dartmouth professors are not underemployed. Uh, and and incidentally, at at, at research universities fill that Econ 101 class with a 1,000 kids so that 50 doctoral students can be supported as teaching assistants. There you go. Yes. Right, right. And then, you know, the, the chairman of the department can go to the dean and say, do you see the enrollments in our classes? We need more lines. Exactly. Whereas if that Econ 101 goes from 1,000 down to 200 because everybody else is 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 testing out of it via advanced placement or or some anything else for that matter then those lines go down those those doctoral teaching assistants go way down uh the professor no longer has the status of enrolling the biggest class in the college and so forth and so on there are a lot of motives at play here uh, just as there are i should add in the a handful of elite private prep schools that have been uh, uh, backing away from AP in recent years, even as the program has spread into thousands more high schools, there are 100 or 200 uh, often big-name prep schools that are saying, we don't teach AP anymore. Uh, and uh, if you ask them why, um, they'll give you various answers, um, the most uh, sort of legitimate of which is that their teachers want to devise their own their own course syllabus and their own their own curriculum, and they don't want to have to sort of jump to the college board uh, beat uh, of what's supposed to be covered in an AP course. And I, I understand that, but uh, I also Andrew and I give them a little bit of grief in the book about being hypocritical because many of these same schools that uh, say we don't teach AP 
not only offer the exams to their students, but they then boast about how their kids do on those exams. You know, it's a competitive world out there, Checker. <laughs> yes, it is. And some places are competing for status and some are competing for bodies and their butts in seats, you might say, and tuition dollars. Uh, and, and, well, and kids are, and one of the reasons these prep schools have to offer the exams, by the way, is because the kids are competing for colleges. And, and the parents, to paraphrase and, and a, a college counselor at one of these prep schools who said to us, these parents of our students will kill to get their kids advantage in the college sweepstakes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, the book is Learning in the Fast Lane, the Past, Present, and Future of Advanced Placement. Thank you, Checker. It's a pleasure, Mark. All the best. 